Well, happy first Sunday of Advent. Um, Two quick things before we dive in, I guess three. So we've been walking through Acts and our custom uh, is that we'd walk through different genres of the Bible, uh, but not all year long. So where we left off in Acts, we're going to pick up next um, next August, and then after Advent, we'll pick up in Matthew where we left off last spring. So that's kind of how we, we've been working through different genres of the Bible so we can hit uh, the whole counsel of God. Secondly, um, in this Advent season, you know, we've been saying, we, we, a lot of you have contributed a lot of great decorations to the church. So this Tuesday, for whoever can make it from one to five, we would like to invite you to come and help us decorate. Um, it is, I, I'm excited about what it will look like. And honestly, I'm just excited about hanging out with some of y'all and, and getting this place Christmas-fied. And then that brings me to my third one. You notice a lot of you have, have put your picture, your frame pictures out there. And some of you have realized it doesn't have to be all that complicated. You're just grabbing stuff off the wall <laughs> and putting it there. And so if you haven't yet, please consider uh, giving a picture of you, you and your friends, you and your family. We don't care. There can be multiples, just not bigger than like that. Um, but it has been fun. If you look out there, people are always looking at the different pictures and some are new, some are not new. And that is fun too. So those are the three things. Uh, like I said, Advent, we are going to, as you heard, be in Matthew chapter two this morning, which is very much a part of the Christmas uh, story, but not one that you hear taught a lot in, in Advent. Uh, it's not a, a cheery story. It's actually quite disturbing when you read it. Um, so in addition, I have my normal commentaries I go through as I do my research. And then, especially with tougher passages, I have a list of pastors that I kind of want to see, what did you do with this passage? And only one of any of my normal go-tos has ever preached on this that I can find. So my guess is that even though this is very much a Christmas passage story, it's not one that we really want to talk about at Christmas time because it's mainly about suffering. And not just any suffering, significant suffering. I mean, having babies taken from people and murdered. Why would you want to talk about this kind of suffering in the happiest time of the year? And if I'm honest, I think at the end of this year, as Rob talked about and prayed about, there has been a measure of suffering that I think would be good to lean into. And it is a part of the Christmas story. So that's what I want to do. Because not, not only is suffering a part of the Christmas story and the arrival of Jesus, suffering is a major part about the Christian message. And ironically, the existence of evil, pain, and suffering historically, or I can say at least for the past 2,400 years that we know of, it's been one of the main arguments against God in general and the Christian God specifically. And so the argument has taken a lot of different forms, but here's generally how it's presented. How can you possibly believe in a God who is both good and sovereign or omnipotent given the reality of evil, pain, and suffering in the world? So basically, you have to, they would say you have to choose. You, you, know, you have a God who is, maybe he's good, but unable to deal with the pain and suffering in the world. Or you have a God who is able, but unwilling in a way that compromises his goodness and his character. So how can you have pain and suffering and have the God that you proclaim that is both able and good? 
And so that's exactly what this passage, this is where it goes. So that's where we're going to go. And we're going to look at this, we're going to walk through this passage and kind of divide it up into two different different parts. First, we're going to dive into the, the suffering in the Christmas story that we see. And then we're going to look at the healing in the Christmas story that we see. So first, the suffering. There are four types of suffering that I can identify in this passage. And I do want to give credit to a pastor named J.D. Shaw. Uh, Two of these I probably wouldn't have seen if not for his work on the passage. But the first type of suffering that we see is obvious. It's the most obvious. It's death. We see death. Herod has been told by the wise men, whoever the wise men are, they have seen a star that indicates to them that a king has been born. And so this is problematic for Herod because he's king over this region. So he tells the wise men, go find this child king and come back and report to me. Because obviously he wants to eliminate any potential threat to the power and the control that he has in this region. And so the wise men find Baby Jesus, it wasn't like at the nativity scene probably, but at some time later, he's young, still would call baby Jesus. And they, but they don't go back to report to Herod. They go back another way and this infuriates Herod. And so he just, he wants to eliminate this potential threat. So he makes an order that every baby boy under two years old in Bethlehem would be killed. And then just to be safe, let's kill all the babies, baby boys under two in the whole region. So that, that's what Herod calls for. And at some point during this time, maybe at the height of, of Herod's rage, an angel appeared to Joseph and says this, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So they take the child to Egypt and they stay there until Herod dies. And there's no, circum- there's no explaining this passage in a way that isn't truly horrible. But, but it is good to understand the scale of what's going on because I think in, in our modern times, we hear that all the babies in a city and a region are killed and we're thinking hundreds, if not thousands of babies. Bethlehem was a small village in a rural area. Probably we're talking about 20 to 30 baby boys, which is horrible still, just, just getting us on the, the right scale at, probably wasn't the bloodbath that we have in our mind, but it's still a horrible, horrible thing. And what we see through this horrible, horrible thing is that Jesus doesn't enter into this pristine little environment that most of our nativity scenes would, would indicate. Jesus entered into a world of death. I mean, this, this is a reality for his world. And again, I didn't plan Rob's talk and prayer with mine, but it looks like we did because we're saying a lot of the same things. So praise God for the Holy Spirit. But death still exists. And, and especially in this year, some of you are experiencing Christmas, first Christmas with, without a loved one that, that you're used to having with you. Some of you have had health experiences that are causing you to more profoundly contemplate your own mortality and imminent death. And some of you have had tragically experienced the loss of babies. So there's a lot about the death in this passage that we still experience today. And people who have, people as we have historically dealt with death outside of the Christian worldview are often will look at a Christian and say in light of all these horrible things happening, whether it's 
death at 90 or death of a baby and say, where is your God that you say has so much power and sovereignty and cares about us, yet these people are dying? That's the first kind of pain that we see in the passage. It's the easiest type of suffering, excuse me. The second is disappointment. I'm going to read again a little bit of 19 and I'm going to go through 22. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are now dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Herod dies. Joseph is thinking, all right, we can go home now. We can go to Bethlehem where, where his family was. But then at some point on his journey back, they realize, no, Archelaus, Herod's son, he's in charge now and his reputation is just as bad as his father Herod. And Joseph, Joseph has been tasked with protecting not just a baby, which would be enough, and not just a baby who would be king, but a baby who would be king and save humanity. That's a pretty significant stewardship. So he rightly goes in, hears that Archelaus is now in charge, and one worries for Jesus's safety. If Archelaus finds out that this, that this baby Jesus is back, what would he do? And so he goes to Galilee instead of Bethlehem. How disappointed do you think Joseph was? I, mean, I, really, I really thought about this a lot this week. I mean, Joseph would have, we have every reason to believe he would have wanted to go back where his, his, and raise his children where, where he was raised and around his parents and his family and his kids can run around with their cousins. There may have been family land or homes or something that would have financially benefited him. Could he have gone back to Bethlehem? I don't think it's crazy to imagine that at some point, Joseph, let me, let me say, if I were Joseph, I can tell you what I would have thought at some point. Really, God, I, I'm doing all this for you. Could, could you not just give me this one thing, this one blessing of being able to see my family and raise my kids around my family? I think the disappointment would have been significant. And I think this is a kind of suffering that's really easy to relate to for a lot of us. I've heard counselors define disappointment th- this way. There's a gap that exists between, uh, between expectation and reality. And, and the wider that gap is, the more significant the disappointment and the more likely it would be to lead to what we would now call true depression. And this gap can exist from unrealized hopes, from irretrievable losses, it can come from blocked career goals or family goals, or it could just be like Joseph, not getting to be with the ones that you miss and love the most. And this one resonates with me because I've had the, the I don't want to call it a privilege, but I, 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 it is a privilege to walk with people in their suffering, but it's just such a unique suffering this year when you have so many people who are locked in their homes and they can't be with their children and their grandchildren and in most cases can't hug and in some cases literally can't be together in the same presence. The only way they can view each other is on a screen. And I think this kind of disappointment 
and all the disappointments that we face, the larger that gap gets, the more likely we would be to wonder, where are you, God? And if you're good, why is it that you're allowing these things to happen? Especially those of us who are older and don't know how much more time we have with our grandkids. This would be significant disappointment. And then the third kind of suffering that we see in this passage, I'll call general opposition. Because we have we have this general, these general disappointments that just come from living in a fallen world. But, but what Jesus is experiencing is a more specific uh, and more targeted, targeted and, and active opposition. He is being opposed because of who he is. First, in our passage by Herod, because Herod is threatened by who this baby might be one day. And if you've been with us through the book of Acts, you know that, that, that the leaders continued to be threatened by Jesus. We saw that the, the Pharisees were threatened, the Sadducees, the priests, the high priest, the captain of the temple guard. Everyone was threatened by Jesus's claim to be king. But it wasn't just Jesus's claim to be king. Jesus was claiming to be God himself, which is ultimately why he was killed. And they thought that will fix the problem. But as you continue next fall, as we will continue our journey in Acts, you're going to see that the same opposition that Jesus faced is now faced by his followers because those who heard not only of Jesus' life and death, but his resurrection, they began to follow him as well. And now the, the, the Roman emperors, the Caesars are threatened by the followers of Jesus. So they would bring the full weight of the Roman power of persecution to these Christians, creating events where they would be slaughtered in mass very publicly, thinking this is going to make people not want to follow Jesus. And because they can see these people are being killed. If their God is real, is he, is he able to intervene? It doesn't look like it. Does he care about his people being slaughtered? It doesn't look like it. And so this is contributing to the problem of evil over the course of the at least church history, but it goes back before that as well. Then fourthly, we see the suffering of just being looked down on. Look at verse, verses 22 and 23. I'm gonna start halfway through 22. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew from the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And there's a lot of confusion over what prophecy Matthew is referring to because this is the first moment in our Bibles that the word Nazarene or Nazareth is mentioned. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there any kind of prophecy about Nazareth. So what is it that, that Matthew's trying to accomplish here? Well, the, the most reasonable and compelling argument that I was able to find and this does really resonate with me, is that by the time Matthew is writing, the term Nazarene had come to mean basically the middle of nowhere. You know, like, like we would refer to, uh, we'd use the word podunk. He's from podunk, Florida. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's middle of nowhere. It's not gonna, gonna help you out in any real way. And so this resonates, resonates with me because if you remember in John chapter one, Philip had met Jesus and Philip went to Nathaniel and said, and wanting him to see this Jesus of Nazareth, quote, whom Moses and the law and all the prophets are referring to. And what was Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And so that, that makes sense to me that that would be the way Matthew is using it. I lived in Oxford, Mississippi for six years where Ole Miss is. And there was this feeling, can anything good come out of Starkville, Mississippi, where Mississippi State is? And that includes Dan Mullen, but I won't go there anymore. So that's the way that I think people heard this term Nazareth and it comes together for Matthew because he knows Isaiah 53. The, the prophecy that the Messiah wouldn't be this grand person to look at and to hear about or where he would come from. So Isaiah 53 verses two and three. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And here it is, we esteemed him not. He was looked down on. I think that's what Matthew's, he's connecting the dots to get to the suffering servant. And as Christians, especially Christians today, I think we can increasingly identify with this idea of being looked down on for what it is that we believe. Because over the past few hundred years now, our culture has increasingly looked at our faith as outdated and backwoodsy as Nazareth. And now it's not just that it would, our faith isn't just outdated. Increasingly, people are, are, are accusing it of being immoral. So gone are the days when being a Christian is going to benefit you in your workplace or getting elected or whatever you want to do in society. When I was a brand new Christian, I was at a family gathering and um, I had some aunts and uncles who literally cornered me and accosted me for my new faith. And not only did they disagree with me, they wanted to reason me out of this faith. It was a very disheartening experience, but this is what Jesus says will happen. He was looked down on, we will be looked down on. But if we're just gonna look at the suffering of being looked down on, it's not limited to our faith. I mean, you can feel looked down on or overlooked at work, in your home, maybe because of your stage of life, your young, your singleness, your age. And when that happens enough, when we constantly feel looked down on and overlooked, it's not unusual to get to a place where we wonder, is there anybody looking down on me at all? Is there anybody who cares about the way that I feel? And so we can't answer the problem of pain and suffering until we, until we look at it and address it. We have to feel the pain before we can heal the pain. That's the suffering in the passage. Now, we get to the healing of the Christmas story. And I am gonna step out of the passage just for a moment and talk about two ways that we can, we can approach suffering. The first way I'm stepping out of the passage, the second way is in the passage. But the first option, and has historically, we've seen a lot of people do this, is just abandon the idea of God altogether. So this was the position of C.S. Lewis before he became a Christian. He, he looked at the evil and suffering in the world and could not... Uh, rectify that with the God of the Christian God of the Bible. So he set out to attack Christianity based on the evil and suffering in the world. And eventually he got to a, to a point where he began to see all the dis- deficiencies of his own view and he became a Christian. So and his line of thinking that really centered around how can you abandon the idea of God and hold on to ideas of justice and fairness. So I want to think about it. 
suffering, the reality of suffering is actually much more of a defense of the view of God than it is a way to attack it. And so both C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, they're not the only ones, but they're the ones I've interacted with the most. They've, they've made the observation that most of the objections that you're going to hear about, about God, and specifically the Christian God, is going to center around ideas of fairness. God being fair, God being just. But if you study the natural world and you see the you observe things like natural selection and the strong overcoming the weak and natural disasters and death and destruction, how would you come to the idea that anything should be fair or just? Nothing about our natural world is fair or just or should lead us to think that it should be so. The ideas of fairness and justice they, they, they come from somewhere else. So this is what C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller landed on, that w- what we're doing when we abandon God but hold on to the, this idea that things should be fair and things should be just is we're taking a supernatural standard and we're importing it into the natural world. C.S. Lewis wrote, the problem that we have trouble explaining is that the universe contains obvious evil and apparent meaninglessness. But it also contains creatures, us, that can recognize things that are evil and meaningless. So the very existence, our ability to see evil and meaninglessness and fairness, like there's no other creature that can really see those things and that actually supports the idea of the existence of God more than it does dispute it. But then the next, the next question we have to interact with, then is it God who caused this sin? Like is, it, is it God who brought this sin into the world? No, would be the answer, not directly. And there are a lot of people who, who interact with this. But Jonathan Edwards is one that I, I like a lot on this topic. And he argues that God allows sin to exist. He would even say, wills it to exist. But that's very different than causing it to exist. This is how he says it specifically. God has established a world in which sin will necessarily come to pass by God's permission, but not by his direct action. So the analogy that Edward uses is like the sun. The sun brings us light and warmth. But then when it goes away, we have darkness and cold. So is the sun actively bringing us darkness and cold? No, but the sun is by, by not giving us its main active contribution necessarily causing the cold and the dark and the same, the same with God. That's Edward's argument and I think he does it very well. But that raises the most important question. Why would God do this? Like why, if he's good, why would God do this? God does not delight and evil, but he allows it to come to pass that more good might come. So God has created sovereignly a world in which sin will come to pass, but at the end of time, for those who follow Jesus, we're going to see that this was the best possible way for things to happen. In the same way that God used Joseph's trials to bless all of Israel, he will use our, our suffering and our pain to bless all of us as we are going to see who choose Christ Jesus. 
And I want to be really clear. The problem is not with God. God has given us this blessing as human beings that we call self. The problem is that we as human beings have chosen to put our self ahead of God. That's the main problem. And so we do this in all kinds of ways, hundreds, maybe thousands of different ways. But the one that's specific to what we're talking about here, we put ourself ahead of God when we say, God, I could do this better than you. The whole argument about the problem of evil is me saying, or whoever, I don't my argument, but whoever has this argument, I could do better than you, God. My finite temporal mind, I could figure out this thing, this design for life better than your infinite and eternal mind. That's the height of pride. So I don't think that abandoning God because of the plight of suffering and evil is a logically tenable position. I really don't. So that brings us to option two. Remember option one was abandoning God. Option two is to embrace a Christian understanding of pain and suffering. And that does bring us back to our passage. Uh, Let's go back to verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew here is quoting Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is prophesying this mass weeping that will and in fact did happen when because of the sin of Israel, God hands over his people to their Babylonian captors and they are carried off off into Babylon and so the historic Rachel she's long dead now but the way Jeremiah is using her is as this metaphorical mother uncontrollably weeping over the consequences of the decision of their children so the question is why is Matthew quoting Jeremiah here what is the weeping that's going on in Israel have to do with the weeping of all these babies being killed And the answer is because both weepings immediately precede redemption. So think, look at where where this this Jeremiah citation is. It's in Jeremiah thirty one. What comes immediately after that? The clearest promise of the new covenant that we have in all of the Old Testament. And what does Matthew have? The arrival of that promise. That's what Matthew is doing. So. Only the Christian worldview can both explain and solve the, pain, the existence of pain, evil, and suffering in our world. And you do have other theistic worldviews like dualism that can at least address the problem, but they don't provide a real solution for it. Only Christianity does this because only Christianity has Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all the pain and suffering that we are going to experience because Jesus, fully God and fully man, enters into our world and experiences the fullness of the pain that all of us interact with on a regular basis. I mean, you remember in the first part of this passage, we saw disappointment being looked down on, opposition, and death. If there are four words that better describe the life of Jesus Christ on this earth, I I don't know what they are. So whatever pain and suffering that you're experiencing in your life right now, Jesus gets it. He understands it, not from an academic point of view, but he's been there. He's felt our emotions. The author of Hebrews says, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But Jesus doesn't come simply to sympathize with our pain and suffering. He comes to end it. He comes to rid us of our pain and suffering forever. And he did this by giving his perfect, just life over to the excruciating death of crucifixion. And not just the excruciating death of crucifixion, but that during that crucifixion, he would receive the fullness of the wrath of God. So what is it that was so valuable to Jesus that he would endure suffering that not only none of us will ever even be able to experience, but really would never imagine? What was so valuable? You. That's the Christian hope, that he would come and exchange lives with us, that he would take the, the punishment that we deserve and he would hand over to us everything that he earned with his just and righteous life. And so because of Jesus, there is now meaning to our suffering and there will be an end to our suffering. The meaning in our suffering is that while we're suffering, we have now the Holy Spirit inside of us who resources us in our suffering, who sustains us, gives us grace to endure the suffering, and not just to endure it, but in the process to glorify God and conform us more into the image of the Son that he has created us to be. So in in many ways, we become more human in our suffering. Tim Keller says, notice God does not take the Israelites out of the desert. He gives them a provision in the desert. And in the same way, until Jesus comes back, we are not taken out of the suffering of this world. We are given provision in it. The apostle Paul says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. I've never experienced those pains. I hear they're terrible, but they're joyful because we know that it's leading to life. And in the same way, Paul is saying our our suffering is the same kind of thing for those of us in Christ Jesus. They're not leading to death like the pains of childbirth. They're leading to a new life. And because of Jesus, not only does our suffering have meaning, it does have an end. I say this a lot. Whatever is true of Jesus is made true of us when we believe in him. So right now, that's gonna mean pain. Jesus got pain on this earth and he tells us in a lot of different places that we will too. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. But what's also true of Jesus is the resurrection. The apostle Paul says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, all our sufferings, our our fears, our losses, our insecurities, our disappointments, they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's okay to be sad in your suffering. It's okay to cry at Christmas time. But we have to understand in Jesus Christ what God has set up eternally for us. And we will look back and we will say, You were right. No one's going to say on that day that God messed up somehow. We will know that all things worked for our good and for His glory. Uh, I'm going to borrow again from my former pastor. He, he used this illustration on this passage, and it's just so good. Many of you, I'm, I'm sure, are um, you're familiar with Joni Erickson Tata. If you know anything about Joni Erickson Tata, you know that she has been a quadriplegic since 1967. 
when she dove into a shallow part of the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck. And in one of her books, she writes this. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my savior, holding his nail pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you and the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally, at the moment when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. She's saying there's a day when we will see that it was all worth it. And in just a minute, we are gonna get to sing our first Christmas song of the Advent season. We're gonna sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And if you know much about Christmas songs, this is the heaviest of the songs. This is the most serious of the songs. The the tone feels heavy. The words are heavy. I mean, just look at the first refrain. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. That's not a happy, clappy song. That's deep. But the hope is there as it continues. Until the Son of God appears, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So I thought it would be a really good time to sing that song. We're gonna take communion, then we're gonna stand up and proclaim a true Christmas song about our Messiah who came in this passage into a world of pain and suffering and strife, who is redeeming humanity as we speak and who will one day come back. And when that day happens, none of us will question anything about the plan God had ordained. Let's pray. God, we do come to you in many different places, but most of us would say it's a heavier place than the first week of Advent last year. And so we want to celebrate Christmas. We are excited about many of the aspects of Christmas, but God, what, what a hollow, empty excitement if the joy of your gospel is not at its foundation. So we pray today that that would be secured in our hearts, that we would be drawn closer to you and that whatever suffering you choose to give us the privilege to endure for your name's sake, that we would do it adequately for your glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.